0: Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak with leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Matt Abrahams, an educator, expert, and coach in business communication. He is founder and principal at TFTS Communications, LLC, a presentation and communication skills company. And he's a mainstay at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches strategic communication courses and workshops. He hosts the podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, which I've had the honor of appearing on, and he's published many research articles and books on effective communications. His new book, Thinking Faster, Talking Smarter, came out this fall. I'm delighted to welcome Matt to the minor consult to discuss the importance of communication skills in corporate America, how to effectively present ourselves to others, and how he thinks AI will affect human expression, and connection. Matt, welcome. It's great to have you here today. You know, you've thought a lot about communications. You've devoted your professional career to thinking, teaching about communications. And I'm wondering at the outset of our conversation, what are the key points that you, um, when you're talking with leaders, when you're teaching courses to business school students or others, organizing workshops, what are the 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 really salient points that you want to get across in in those encounters. Yeah, well, thank you. There there are a few key
1: ideas that I,
0: I find myself sharing a
1: lot. One is most people start from the wrong place when they communicate. They start by saying, here's what I want to say, when in fact, what we all know is important is what does the audience need to hear? So it's encouraging people to take that audience centric approach. We know so much about what we want to get across. We often forget that we have to be translating it in a way that our audience can receive it. And the only way to do that is to really reflect on their needs. What do they know relative to the topic we're discussing? How do they feel about the topic? Where are some areas of hesitation or resistance? And then the other big thing that I talk about a lot these days is being very clear and concise. I think attention is the most precious commodity we have in the world today. Our attention is constantly being pulled in different directions and we need to make sure that our content is concise, clear, and relevant so people can actually digest it and do something with it. Those are the two big areas I talk a lot about
0: what um, are some of the common pitfalls that you see with for people who are learners in this space and maybe who've Obviously, we've all been communicating a lot since, yes. we, were, since we learned to talk. But, yes. um, but things that you have to work on people undoing, if you will, in order for them to progress in, their, in, in, in development of their communication skills.
1: So in a, a couple avenues come to mind. Uh, to play off what I was talking about being very concise, uh, my mother has this saying that I love. I know she didn't create it, but it's, tell me the time, don't build me the clock. A big thing that a lot of people do is they're clock builders. They tell us much more than they need to to help us understand. We need to be clear, concise, and focused. And so a lot of us in in my initial work with people, they give so much detail. And it's really helping people prioritize and package up the information to be clear. And then when it comes to how we say what we say, be it written or spoken, there are things we can do in terms of our presence that can really make a difference. So a lot of people, you know, we've all seen on virtual calls where people are either not showing their screen or they're looking away or they're fidgeting. So we have to think not just about what we say, but how we say it. So I I work to disabuse people of a lot of their their foibles and habits that, that distract us from their message.
0: You, you spoke just a moment ago about our attention spans yeah. being short. And yeah. and my impression is probably getting shorter as yes. well. But yes. um, What are some of the key points in communication in a virtual mm-hmm. medium in, in the Zoom world, for example, right. compared to the conversation that you and I are having right now right. or a conversation in a meeting with, say, four to six to ten people or a communication to in person... A room full of a uh, hundred or more people. Are there some threads that that go through all of those mm-hmm. uh, communication uh, endeavors, and also some specific differences, in particular in the virtual world, that that we need to keep in mind as communicators.
1: Absolutely. So any communication situation, you really have to be focused on the needs of the audience, as I mentioned. You need to have a clear goal as the communicator to what you're trying to achieve. To me, a goal has three parts. It's information, emotion, and action. So what do you want the audience to know feel and do. So if you're virtual, if you're in person, big groups, small groups, synchronous or asynchronous, I think I've covered all of them. There's so many things we have to think about now. Having a goal is really important. Listening to understand what's being said and needed in that moment so you can respond, that's really important. When it comes to virtual though, we, we are disconnected in terms of reading a lot of the nonverbal cues. You're nodding your head, you're looking inquisitive. Mm-hmm. I don't always have that advantage when I'm virtual. So it's incumbent on me when speaking virtual, virtually to engage the audience so I can get some of those cues and clues. And when it comes to engagement, I like to look at it in three ways. And, and these apply to in-person as well. There's physical engagement. In, in virtual communication, you can do a lot to get people physically involved. Have them type into the chat, put them into breakout rooms, show them uh, videos or slides, get them engaged physically because we're the body goes, the brain will follow. I love the reactions button and using chat. That's physical engagement.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mental engagement, cognitive engagement, ask questions, use analogies. People see things, they answer those questions even if they're rhetorical. That gets them engaged. And then finally, using language. We can really engage people through language. Use people's names or what I call time traveling language. I can take you into the future. I can say, imagine what it would be like if, or picture this. And when I say that, you actually see it in your mind's eye versus me just telling you. Or I can take you back to the past. I can say, remember when or think back to when. So those engagement techniques are needed in a virtual environment because we don't have this face-to-face nonverbal presence that I can read. Yet we can still use those engagement techniques in person as well. So similarities for sure, but some specific differences as well.
0: In a couple of your responses, you have mentioned three points, and yeah. I'm I'm wondering if, and that typically for yeah. us in, uh, that, that deliver speeches and right. uh, and communications to larger groups, we're taught you know three points usually is the optimal number. But right. how do you think about that as you're organizing your teaching around communications, and as you are teaching communicators? of how they structure their ideas into points right. uh, that can then be uh, communicated as individual points. Is there a maximum? Is three the ideal number or uh, something different? Three feels right yeah. often. You know, Two feels like not enough and four or five feels like too many.
1: But what I coach people is really think about what is your key message, your goal? What are the points that you need to get across? How can we rationalize those points to be as concise and clear as possible and if it's four it's not the end of the world certainly anything beyond six seven that's too many we just can't process that information the key though it's less about the number and it's more about the structure itself we are not designed humans are not designed people in your organization i've interviewed uh, many of your neuroscientists we've talked about the power of story our brains are not wired For lists of information. We just can't process it well. What we do process well is information that is logically structured, connected together, a story, something with a beginning, middle, and end. So one of the things I coach people all the time on is how to structure information using frameworks. And there are many frameworks that we can leverage. A very common one, anyone who's ever sold anything or seen an advertisement has seen the problem, solution, benefit structure. Here's a problem or issue, Mm -hmm. here's how we resolve it, and here's the benefit. As a speaker, if I can put my content into a structure, it packages it up nicely for my listeners. It also takes the cognitive burden off of me to think about how am I going to say this. I know how. So if you are somebody who is being interviewed a lot, you can leverage a structure to answer your questions. I do that in the questions you're asking me. I give an answer. I give an example, and then I explain how others can use it. That's a structure I'm using. I hope the people listening to this don't feel like I'm being overly structured in my answer, but it helps me and hopefully helps them get my answers across.
0: One of the things you write about Mm -hmm. in your recently released book is how to plan for the unexpected in communications. Uh, And could you talk a little bit about that now and, and of course, that's becoming more expected yeah. that there will be the unexpected, and we live in a challenging world where yes. uh, conflict is is becoming more and more common and more open, and that may or that may actually be a good thing. How do you teach leaders uh, how to prepare for the unexpected, and what perhaps first what not to do uh, <laughs> in response to the unexpected?
1: Yes, and, and so in my, my new book and in the work I do, I call it Think Faster, Talk Smarter because we all are being put into these circumstances where we have to respond in the moment. Sometimes it's conflict, sometimes it's questions, sometimes it's feedback. It's really important to prepare to be spontaneous, and that sounds counterintuitive, but if you think about it, you know, anybody who's ever played a sport or played a musical instrument that does some kind of freestyle uh, improvisation, you need to prepare, you need to have some fundamentals. So... The things that get in people's way, first off, is we, when in these moments, we feel like we want to do it right. I want to give the right answer. I want to give the best feedback I can. In small talk, we want to have the perfect conversation. This desire to do it right actually gets in your way of being able to do it well at all. It puts a lot of pressure on ourselves. It increases our cognitive load. If I am constantly evaluating and judging what I'm saying as I'm saying it, it will stifle and stymie what it is that's possible. I have the audacity, Lloyd, on the very first day of my classes, to tell my Stanford MBA students to maximize their mediocrity. And they look at me like I'm crazy, (laughs) nobody has ever told a Stanford MBA to achieve mediocrity. But here's the magic in that, if you give yourself permission just to do what you need to do, that frees up this cognitive bandwidth to do really well. So the full quote that I give at the end of my first class is maximize mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. And my students understand that and the people I coach, the leaders I work with get it too. I'm not saying we shouldn't judge and evaluate what we, when we communicate, we should, but we can turn the volume down a little bit so we can be more present and agile and responsive. So the biggest thing that gets in our way is ourselves. So how do we prepare? We practice. We put ourselves in circumstances where people ask us questions or we reflect on potential ways of answering questions. We remind ourselves that in small talk and chit chat conversations, that our goal is actually to set others up to be successful rather than ourselves to score a point or to land Mm -hmm. an idea. So it's these mindset shifts paired with the structure that we talked about just a moment ago that allows us to do better in spontaneous speaking.
0: One thing it, it comes up in spontaneous speaking, but it's not restricted to spontaneous speaking is how we connect mm-hmm. with the listener, with yeah. the person whom with whom we're communicating and with whom we want to convey a message. would could you talk about some of the points of connection and mm-hmm. how those different you've already spoken a little bit about what we can do in the in the zoom world, for right. example, with reactions right. uh, with breakout groups uh, right. with uh, asking questions that engage people uh, during the, the conversation but how, how how do you think about connection and how do you teach that to your students? Absolutely and, and it has to do with both our what we
1: do nonverbally and what we do in terms of our, our presence so you are a master of this you, you are positioned well you're open you're nodding these are the behaviors that signal I'm interested I'm listening and I'm connected so we need to give ourselves permission to be open to signaling that engagement and connection. The other things we can do are are first listening. Listening is such a powerful skill. Giving people our attention is very validating, not just for the person to feel good, but it also validates that we heard what they're saying. And I've borrowed a methodology from one of my colleagues, Collins Dobbs. He teaches a course at our business school on crucial conversations. And he uses this framework that I, I have now started using for listening, and it's three things, pace, space, grace. You have to slow things down to connect, to be immediate like you're talking about. We are often so frenetic that we don't connect because our mind is in so many different places, so we have to slow down. The next thing we have to do is give ourselves space, not just physical space. We're in a very quiet environment here, but often our communication happens with a lot of noise, so we have to be in a space where we can hear literally, but we also have to give ourselves mental space. Uh I have to be present oriented. You're very good at being present in the moment. That's how we connect. And then finally, grace, when we listen and we connect, we have to give ourselves permission to do that, but we also have to give ourselves permission to listen to our intuition. So as somebody is saying something to me, that might trigger in me a thought that I have or a concern that I have and I have to give that credibility too. It's not just being other focused, I have to be internally focused. So we connect through our nonverbal presence and we connect through listening well. And the last thing I'll say is we can signal that we listen well and you do this quite nicely, which is paraphrasing. So I demonstrate that I heard you by extracting something from what you've said and that validates I heard you and that feels very connective when, when I receive that. And for me as somebody giving it, it shows that I'm really concerned and connected.
0: Matt, you know, we we're facing across the board, uh, if not a crisis, at least a, st- a challenging set of situations yes. regarding trust. Mm-hmm. And it's something I'm concerned about, particularly because trust in science, trust in uh, medicine, uh, mm-hmm. although People trust their doctors, yeah. and that's a good thing. Yes. And we must always do everything we can to preserve that. But people don't necessarily trust the healthcare care delivery system, and they certainly, as demonstrated during the pandemic, have a growing distrust of public health experts or, or those that, that are putting out opinions based upon the best evidence at the time. What can we do through our communications to rebuild that trust and to have a communications environment mm-hmm. uh, that furthers the development of trust.
1: When you were with me on my podcast, we talked a lot about trust and you had some wonderful things to say and a lot of people have responded very positively. So I know trust is something that you think a lot about. I think trust is, is built collaboratively. It's not just something we do to build trust in others. It's something that, that we have to collaborate with the audience as we speak with. I think listening is, is a primary first step We have to show that we care. Um, When people think about healthcare systems and and governments, it's an entity, it's not individuals. So we need as representatives of those entities, we need to connect and listen. We need to find avenues to receive feedback, to demonstrate that we want to hear and that we want to get better. So it's this openness that we communicate first through listening. I think we also, again, going back to this notion, we have to understand what's important and relevant to the people we talk to. You know, I I am by no means a healthcare expert, but I am a participant in healthcare. And some of the messages that I receive from healthcare companies are not framed from my perspective. And and I think if we can simply understand the right lens through which to communicate, that begins to build trust. I think also showing success, uh, the, the media, and we're bombarded with areas of where things have gone wrong or where things are called into question. We need to put forth examples of where things have worked. I mean, When when I think one of the reasons I trust my doctors so much is not only because of the experiences I've had with them, it's the experiences my friends have had with their doctors. So it's learning that immediate specific case that I can then extrapolate back. So trust starts with listening, it starts with collaboration. We have to think about messaging and what the appropriate areas of messaging should be for the individuals.
0: It's a heavy lift,
1: but it's an important one for sure.
0: As a communications expert and coach, <laughs> uh, you've mentioned listening yeah. several times yeah. today in our conversation. Yeah. How do you teach your students, those that come to you for coaching, to be better listeners? So I, I walk them through Pace,
1: Space, Grace, and I we practice. And I encourage people When they listen, not just to listen for the general idea of what somebody's saying, that's what most of us do. And then we begin formulating our thoughts, rehearsing, judging, and evaluating, which disconnects me from you. What I encourage people to do when they listen is to listen for the bottom line. What is the key takeaway of what the person is saying? And when you listen that way, you listen very, very intently, and it causes you to to really focus. I, I watched recently this video from a jazz musician. I'm fascinated by jazz because it's so spontaneous, and he was talking about a teacher that he had, and he said his teacher said the key to being a good jazz musician is to listen until you sweat. And I love that analogy because we can listen very focused in a way that causes our attention. And when we do so, we benefit because we truly connect and understand, and the other person does. So you have, to, you have to appreciate that level of intensity. You have to listen for the bottom line. And finally, you need to practice. And I have to tell you, Lloyd, I teach a lot of this, and my wife will often tell me I need to practice what I teach. <laughs> so we can all continue to get better at this.
0: Understood. I think one of the most valuable courses I took in medical school, yeah. rotations in medical school, was my psychiatry rotation. Because yeah. every day our, our preceptor for the two students on the rotation would have us interview a patient and, and then take no notes during the interview. Right. And then go out of the room and write verbatim the, oh, wow. the encounter, both for the student doing the interview and for the student who was listening. And at first, it's extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. And then, uh, when but and you really do have to focus. Yes. Uh, and then it becomes, and really, I guess the key is it become better at understanding what it is to focus and to put everything out of your mind yeah. except for the conversation and the communication you're having in the moment. And that's something I think all of us are challenged to do because there are so many things that go through our minds. Right. And.
1: The one thing that I wanted to highlight from what you said, and, and you shared that story on on my podcast, and I've been thinking about it a lot, because part of what I think you're developing in that moment when you were having to do that, where you couldn't write it down and then you had to repeat it, is you're training your brain to look for patterns and you're finding patterns and you're saying, oh, this case is very similar to that case and that helps you remember it and that helps you then communicate about it better. So listening is the first step for pattern recognition, which can help us in the moment when we're on our feet and we have to respond right away, we can invoke those patterns that we've internalized. So it all starts with listening and observation and that's what can really help. So I love that story.
0: Well, Matt, maybe we could transition talk about something that is disrupting, we hope oh. mostly positively, <laughs> but uh, has the potential yeah. for other th- other ways of disrupting as well. But that is artificial intelligence, yeah. uh, large language models, uh, right. generative AI, right. and how that's going to impact the way we glean knowledge, but also importantly, how we communicate. You've thought a lot about this. You are thinking a lot about yeah. it. Uh, just start the conversation with what's on your mind when it comes to generative AI. So
1: I, I am somebody who is always very curious about and excited about new technologies. I've always been that way. And so I am I am excited and curious, and I am concerned. Uh, I was so curious that in, in my small Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast team, uh, we were talking about we, we need to do something around generative AI, and we were brainstorming. And I, I just came up with the idea with, why don't we interview it? So I actually did an interview with ChatGPT. And I asked it some of the very questions that I think you're getting at, which is, what is the, the impact going to be? And the tool itself said that it is not here to replace the way we communicate. It is here to augment. And that's how I'm trying to approach it. So I have a few ideas about how we can leverage it. In my classes, I'm encouraging my students to use generative AI for a few things. One, as a tool to practice spontaneous speaking. You can type into a generative AI tool, a topic, you can say generate these questions on the topic. When it spits out those questions, you can practice. Uh, For my non-native speaking students, it's a wonderful tool to help them find ways to use the language perhaps a little more nuanced and, and accurately. So I think there are some very specific ways that we can leverage the the, genera- the power of generative AI. I, as a teacher, I, I like to give my students lots of examples. It takes time to craft examples. I have used generative AI to help increase the number of examples that I provide my students. So there are lots of opportunities. Now I have concerns: the veracity of the information, the thought process, or ease with which people can now. F- find and write things so that they don't have to actually learn those skills themselves. So finding that balance is, is appropriate, but I, I am taking uh, or trying to take a neutral position. I am encouraging my students to explore it, but to do so in a transparent way so people aren't hiding what they're doing. Um, but I think all of us as, as academics and all of us as people need to figure out how this tool can benefit us without. Um, taking us down to some pretty scary places. I'll share one last thing. Uh, a, A son of a friend of mine input a bunch of my audio files from the podcast and then was able to use an AI tool to translate into languages I don't speak what I had said. It was phenomenal and scary at the same time to hear my voice in a language I don't speak saying what I said. Now, think about that as a, as a tool to learn a new language. Great way. I can hear myself saying those words that I need to learn. But pretty scary that my, I, somebody can take my voice and use it for other things. So I, I, I have excitement and concern.
0: What do you think will distinguish conversation generated through large mm-hmm. language models from a conversation like we're having today? And, and is it necessarily a bad thing to follow up on? Mm-hmm. Points you just made, uh, that there will be some supplementing or perhaps even supplanting of this type of conversation by, by a generative AI approach. So I think the
1: big thing that's missing is the connection we talked about, yeah. uh, that, that personal interpersonal connection. We saw how important that is when we went virtual during the pandemic and everybody had to communicate that way. And, and we, while we can mimic it and try to replicate it, it's still not the same. And I don't think AI is going to get to that point at least anytime soon. It is something though that uh, we do need to, to consider. How do we best communicate? What are the certain types of situations where we use AI and where we don't? Will it supplant certain types of communication? I think so. I think it will be used for some of the very quick things that we spend time with. Um, you know, I, I have been known to use it for titles of papers I write or, or podcasts I create. I'll say, you know, just to get ideas as a brainstorming tool when I might have sat down with a team of people and said, "Let's do this." So I think there's some things that we we can use it for that'll be pretty straightforward and it will replace some of the interaction. I am hopeful that by offloading some of those lower level skills and needs that we can then spend more time in the collaborative, interactive, connective
0: communication that we need and are so good at that I don't think AI is so good at yet. In your interactions with leaders and you, you've been teaching communications to leaders and, and, and we're, we're all in one measure or another. more than we probably think, a leader. Yes. What are some of the trends you've seen over the years you've been doing this in terms of themes you're Mm -hmm. hearing in your coaching? uh, And how have those changed, bringing us up to the present day and some of the key challenges, you talked about a few already, but Mm -hmm. some of the key challenges today and how maybe those compare to say 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, so I think there are two major areas that that I hear a lot about. Uh, One is just the need for agility. We have to be able, more and more, we have to be able to switch gears so quickly. I, I'm speaking you know, to my constituents, my clients, my patients, and then I'm turning around and talking to my colleagues and I'm talking to the press. We're, we're constantly having to shift modes and that's hard. It's hard to yeah. shift and adjust the communication for these audiences so quickly. And then the second category is accessibility. How do I take complex information and make it accessible? All of our lives have become more complex, more detailed, more technical, more scientific. And how do we make the information that we need to get across accessible? I don't believe in dumbing things down or simplifying. Mm -hmm. So we have to find ways to make that accessible. So it's really about agility and accessibility that I have seen the trend over the last, not just 20 years, but even just the last four or five years where people are coming to me saying, I feel so burdened by having to so quickly shift or how do I take this and translate
0: it in a way that people understand? Those are the two big areas I see a lot. I'm also curious in that that in the political realm today, there's a lot of discussion about how you know negative politics is 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 negative politics. <laughs> right. On the other hand, it works yeah. uh, uh, in terms of getting people elected, uh, being able to drive home a point. What are your thoughts about that? As you look broadly in communications, and and you. Yeah. certainly coach political leaders as well. I do, yeah. um, And I'm just wondering how the political dialogue has changed over time and what your concerns are about it and uh, as a coach, how you talk to leaders as they're structuring their ability to get across their message or to win their election. Right. So I, I, I am very troubled by
1: what we have seen in, in the past years over how things have become so negative and so personal in terms of attacks. I, I personally, you know, and I'm Pollyanna-ish in, in this, I guess, is I, I want people to be in public service because they have good intention, because they, they have strong values and ethics that they follow. I don't, I, I appreciate that we need difference and variety. When the people I coach who are in this sphere and other spheres, I, I, I talk a lot about authenticity and I, I work to help people not, not just understand their values and their ethics, but to find ways of presenting that in a positive light. It doesn't mean people have to agree with you. Now if somebody does go negative, I do coach people how to respond. I don't think the best way to respond is to go negative back, but to, to acknowledge your point of view and to correct where errors are made or if things are not factual, but come back to your core principles and core values. We are better as people, we are better as a society when people are authentic and they're representing their point of view fairly and in a way that is um, deemed appropriate and, and I would like to say polite. It really bothers me when people get offensive uh, just to get sensational coverage and that's, that to me is not appropriate
0: and I never coach anybody to go down that path. I think that's an incredibly powerful message. Are, do you feel like people, you're getting your message across? Uh, the, well, I hope so. I mean, yeah. I, I only work with people for whom that message <laughs> resonates. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah.
1: And I am often asked to comment on on what happens when, when things do go negative, And I try to Understand. point out the, yeah. the, the fallacies there. I'm trying my best. You know, where I think I can have the biggest impact is with the 45 students I have in every class I teach. And, sure. and, and I really try to, to help drive these points home and help people discover their own truth and ethics and, and, and try to encourage them to present them in a way that is authentic and appropriate.
0: This has been a wonderful conversation. I'd like to conclude with two questions that I ask each of my guests. Sure. First, what are the most important characteristics for a leader today in your view?
1: Well, I have a a strong view on leadership. I I think uh, communication is operationalized leadership. And in order to communicate well, you need to listen. And you need to be empathetic and, and put yourself in service of the audience, which means you
0: really have to, to understand them. So it's it's all about being other focused for me. And second question is, what makes you optimistic about the future? I,
1: all of my students make me optimistic about the future. My young children, my, my kids make me optimistic about the future. I see the potential, I see the energy, I see the excitement, and I see their passion. And That's what keeps me going. I I love getting up in front of my passionate students who have just these amazing ideas. And it it certainly gives me uh, a lot of energy and helps me feel really good about the future.
0: Matt, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank Thank you. you for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion with author, educator, and strategic communications coach Matt Abrahams. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult@theminorconsult.com, at MinorConsult.com And check out our website, TheMinorConsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.